I'm here in my mold. I'm here in my mold. I don't know, uh, get a chance, if you get to, go to YouTube and uh, watch the whole thing. But did you notice what's happening with this guy? Besides that it's like the best 90s song you ever heard. The Verb, 97. As he gets started, and he's singing, I can't change, I can't change, I can't change, I'm here in my mold, and he's starting to bump against people. And if, if you follow this out, and I don't have time, so we didn't do it, if you follow this out, he bumps more belligerently into people as he gets going. Not really looking for a fight, but not avoiding a fight. And he just keeps walking through life. I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. I'm here in my mold. Now, I heard that for the last 25 years as a, him saying, I can change. But I was working on this sermon, and I felt like you should check that song out. And it says, I can't. I can't, which I think is basically the prevailing idea or reality of most of our world right now. Have you ever been around somebody who is belligerent and they just say, this is the way I am, so deal with it. Now, you might be a person or know a person that doesn't, isn't as belligerent as says that, but you just keep walking and you just keep bumping into people and you just keep bumping into the reality of life and reality of people. I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. So the question I give you is can the worst, most destructive, divisive, arrogant, self-serving, self-righteous, abusive, power-hungry, closed-off, locked-and-loaded person, literally these days, can they change? What you believe about the answer to that question, can people change, has everything to do with what you believe about God. Do you believe people can change? Or is it like the song? God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. That's just how it is. I bunch of, had a bunch of country people in the 830, and they're like, there you go. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much it. But I kind of like, I can't change, I can't change. I'm stuck in this mold. Today, we're in this series right now, uh, through Acts right now, uh, on the uh, elements of the book of Acts and the elements of a movement, the birth of a movement. And we've learned some things about this thing that's catching on as uh, the church is bringing the kingdom and people are being changed, believe it or not. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today, I believe, uh, has everything to do with whether the movement stops or it continues on. The answer to that question that I've posed, can people change? So, I want to introduce you to, uh, now if you've been around, uh, if you've been doing the Jesus thing for a long time and been studying the, the Bible at all, or at least been to church, you've been hearing everybody drop the name Paul, Paul, uh, you know. Uh, a lot of people in this church, which I think is really cool, I'm really glad you're here, you don't have any biblical background at all, well we're going to introduce you to this guy. He wrote most of what follows after this in the New Testament. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to learn about a guy right here. Uh, and um, the very question that we've asked, I think, illustrates some things that we need to understand. 
And so let me, let me draw you into Paul. Now, you know, so, you know, this is such a diverse audience. Some people are like, who? Paul who? There's other people in this room who have a master's degree in Paul. You gotta try and preach a sermon in front of people who have a master's degree in Paul. Fortunately, there we're in 830 and <laughs> it's just a, a saps left now, you know. <laughs> and she happens to be going off to Bolivia, by the way. Smart lady. Super fun. Well, I'm gonna introduce you to this guy. And I think uh, we have some things to learn about him. First of all, <clears throat> back when we were, I, I asked Daniel to skip over this um, in previous weeks so that we could kind of capsulize it right here. Who was this guy? So back in chapter 7 <coughs> of, uh, of Acts, that's when Stephen was being stoned and martyred. And it says that uh, as they were throwing rocks at him and killing him, it says that Paul, Saul, actually, and I'm going to confuse that back and forth, Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Greek name, but uh, Saul was there and he was commissioning the, the uh, martyrdom, the killing, and they were laying their clothes down before him uh, in honor of, of his, uh, I guess, authority to do this. <clears throat> and then it says that there was great persecution amongst the church and that uh, everybody scattered up to uh, Judea and Samaria uh, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And so there's this huge persecution, and it says that Paul, this guy Saul, mix it up again there, let's go Saul until I get switched over at the right time. So Saul uh, is actually going from house to house, pulling people, dragging people, men and women, out and taking them to jail. Many of them will be killed. He's like, as Daniel would say, the LeBron James of Pharisees. He's, he, it says here, he's, he talked about himself in Galatians chapter 1, about how he was the Jew of Jews. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one who was gathering steam and getting recognition for all that he was doing. And what was he doing? He was persecuting the early church. And so we pick it up in chapter 9, which is where we're at today. And uh, I want you to get a picture of, if you went through Jerusalem and you, were, and you talked to any Jesus followers in Jerusalem when this was happening, they would go, who is the most, if you asked them, who is the most likely person or the person who could never change, the way I meant to say that? It would be Paul. That guy is the guy who can't change. He is stuck in his mold. So it says here in verse 1 of, of 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what this Saul guy did, he effectively cleaned up and killed or put in jail most of the people in Jerusalem. Got all the kudos for that, and now he's going to go get the guys who took off. And he gets permission from the high priest, so he's walking, he's, he's got papers, to go up Damascus is about 300 miles away. And he's going to go get the people who it says here are of the way, who belonged to the way. Uh, when were they got that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you are uh, a Pharisee, and you know the scriptures like you do, and you have all the power, and you even got the Sanhedrin to give you the power, you think you have the way. And if somebody else says they have the way, they must not have the way because you got the power. 
So he's going to take out his stick in his self-righteousness and see if he can't go beat down the way. And so he, uh, with apparently um, some, probably some guards, are going up to arrest people in Damascus. And on his way there, pick it up in chapter 3, or in verse 3, because we're going to start to learn about what happens to Paul and, uh, and answer the question we're working on. As he neared Damascus on his journey, on his journey suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and, a heard, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I, I was going to title this sermon. I titled it here in my mold, but I, I had some other titles like hashtag funny meeting you here, or um, I didn't see that coming because you know what happens to him here, right? Boom, light hits. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just right off the bat, I think, and it says, who are you? And he goes, it's Jesus. Now, the cheese gave me a point in between there. You know, I think maybe uh, Jesus it takes that personal when you're messing with his people. Yep, I like that point. <laughs> He does. He takes it personally. He's showing up. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who was he persecuting? He was persecuting his people. And when you persecute his people, you're persecuting him. And he shows up and he says this. Let me finish it out. He says, um, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is really interesting. Jesus shows up and says, this is me, and now get up and go to the city, and I'll tell you the next thing. <clears throat> a lot of people talk about this as Paul's conversion. Well, there's a lot going on here, and it's going to kind of stack up how this works going forward on his conversion. But this part right here is he encounters Jesus. And Jesus says, you get up. Yeah, it's me. Stop persecuting me. Now get up and go to town, and I'll, sh- I'll tell you the next thing. Which, by the way, is what it means to follow Jesus. Just go do the next thing. They, uh, uh, Dallas Willard, a guy who you should read about personal transformation, he says, want to know what to do to grow in your relationship with God? Just do the next right thing. And if you just do the next right thing, you're going to have to ask God and invite him into that. You're going to need him to show up. You're going to have to ask him what the next right thing is. It's just like, just do that. Don't make it so complicated. Just go do the next thing. This is classic Jesus. Get up and I'll show you what's next. Interesting thing about it is, uh, that's not so easy for him, because it says um, the men traveling with. I'm in verse seven. <clears throat> the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anybody. They didn't hear the words. They knew there was a sound, but this was specific for, for Paul. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. What's up with that? Why, do, why, why, does, why does Saul get blinded on the road? And frankly, if you told most people who you were talking to about Jesus, now's the time to get blind. They're probably going, I don't know about that. What, what, why? Why does, why, does, why does he go blind? Why does Jesus make him go blind? 
I think you're talking about somebody who is at the highest heights. And if, and if uh, my theory is, and I can't tell for sure, but it says what he was doing during, the next verses say what he was doing during that three days. He was praying. What was he doing? He was trying to figure out what just happened, who this was, and how do I relate to that? Can you imagine if this didn't? I just got an alternate ending in my mind where, um, boom, light comes down. Uh, he goes, who is this? He says, it's Jesus. Now get up and uh, go reach the Gentiles. What would Paul do? He would go, I was wrong about that, and now I'm going to do this, and he's going to do it like Paul would do it. Big heavy hitter, power leader. That can't happen. Not like that. Because Jesus, I think, is saying, I don't need that. I, I, I I need you. You know what's happening? I believe in those three days, he's back at in Damascus in town, praying. He's getting to grips with what God did and what he's done. This is where he went from, I'm the best Pharisee, to when he finally says, and we see it other, later in Scripture, I'm the chief of all sinners. This is where, he, in this time, uh, he can't see anything, he's not eating or drinking, and he's praying, and, uh, and he gets the reality of who he is compared to who he just encountered which I think is an important part to consider about uh, conversion. I know conversion is like a weird word because nobody wants to say, I converted to Christianity. Well, that's kind of what happens here. That's kind of how it works. Now, yours might not be like Paul's. So far, I haven't met anybody who had lightning and, uh, and was blinded. But um, I can tell you this, that every one of us at some place, some point, is changed. Where the Holy Spirit comes in us and we're different. Something has to happen where we, whether it may not be as dramatic as him, but where we recognize what Jesus has done, who we are, why he did it, where we recognize and can say along with him, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. I was this, but now I'm that. I think that's what happened right there for him. People ask, when, when did Paul get converted in this process here? I don't know, kind of murky for all of us, isn't it, when the exact moment was? But I don't, it's interesting that Jesus leaves it on the table. He just says, go and do the next thing. You just go and do the next thing, which is go back to this place in town and pray. I'll show you what happens next. No, actually, I want to make a differentiation between those two names because there's something that's really cool. He says Saul. You know what Saul means? Called one. Called one. So his name was Saul, his Hebrew name. And what was he doing? He believed he was living out the calling of God for his life. He knew the scriptures better than anybody. And now he's going to kill you in the name of those scriptures. Living out, he's as zealous as anybody's ever been. And now he's, he's living that calling out. What's really profound about this conversion and change. Now, I, I think if you're in Greek and you're talking to Greek people or Roman people who are speaking Greek, and uh, you use his Greek term uh, name Paul, that's probably how it goes. But the meaning of Paul is profound. The meaning of the name is humble. He goes from being the top from being the hero to the zero. And out of there, raising back up to being the hero of the faith. Because it happens opposite, doesn't it? From the inside out, like the song we just sang. So his name changes. Now I want to, so, so, so conversion is profound. But get this, look at the language that he uses, that Jesus uses. They're walking along, I'm in verse four, and that, boom, flash comes. And it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? 
Now, Paul is not, the language really shouldn't be capitalized like it is there because he's not recognizing Jesus as Lord. He's recognizing something is bigger than him, but who are you? And then you hear what? You say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Now, what could Jesus have said? I think there's something significant in that. Who are you? Well, I am the Christ. Do you know who that is? The anointed one. I am the Messiah. All that you've been talking about your whole life, I'm him. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I'm the alpha and the omega. I am God almighty. Bow down. Because that's what you should be doing based on who I am. And that would be completely appropriate, by the way. Paul, even later in Philippians, about some point in the future, says every tongue will confess and every knee will bow down. But isn't it interesting that right here, that's not what it says. It doesn't say, boom. It says, I am Jesus. He uses his personal name. I am Jesus. Why? Because this is personal. Look what it says two verses ahead. Go back up to, uh, yeah, four. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Something really cool in there about this encounter. Those of, those of you who have been doing the Luke thing with us for a while, you know when Jesus mentions your name twice, what it means. Remember Martha? Martha, Martha. That wasn't Martha. Get out and get at my feet. Martha, Martha, you are troubled with many things. Come and sit at my feet. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He loves Jerusalem. He cries for Jerusalem. It was not Jerusalem. I'm coming to take you over. It's a term of endearment. It's, you can hear the emotion in it. Paul, Saul, Saul, Saul. Yes, you're messing with my kids. Saul, Saul. What's he doing? God himself, who is all the things I just said, is leaning in. He's leaning in. And he's giving a personal invitation to the worst guy on the list. He's the worst guy. The guy who sings that song and is stuck in his mold. Paul, Saul, Saul. It's a personal invitation. That's what conversion is. It was, you, you've been doing all this stuff for me. Mm. Now it's going to be different. Now you're going to do this stuff with me. This is going to be a relationship. That's why I believe that he had to go work it out for three days. Because it's personal. Conversion, a relationship with Jesus going from this to that is personal. He's not calling you into going from this list to that list because that'll never change you. You know, I can't change, I can't change. Yeah, you can change a little bit for a little while, but you can't change in there. You can't change your heart. Why did, why did God blind his eyes so he could open the eyes of his heart? And so he could be in relationship. Paul is going to say that later in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open so that you can see his glorious inheritance. Where do you think he got that? He got that right from the very get-go. Because God leans in. 
Those of you who know Jesus, God leaned in to you. And he says, Jake, Jake. Mario, Mario. And he calls your name and he says it twice. And he says, we're here. Uh, that's, you got to stop that. You got to stop doing that to my kids. But I want relationship with you. That is so profound and that is so personal. And he says the exact same thing to you. And here's what's interesting. If we could have the eyes that he has to see what he saw when he saw Paul, he didn't see Paul in the behavior that Paul was doing. I mean, he stopped him in that. He saw, he, it, didn't, it didn't escape him. He was aware of the suffering of his people. But when he calls to Paul, and, and, and this thing we're going to look at in a second, he sees his destiny. That would be a change. See, Jesus breaks off the mold. That's what he's all about. He's breaking off the mold. So you get to walk uh, a new life. That's awesome. Paul's an example of that thing. But here's a convicting thing. And I, I actually was drawn to this guy in this narrative. Super challenging. What happens next? Because right now, I've left the, I left the narrative with uh, Paul Blind hanging out at uh, this guy named Judas's house. What happens? It says here in verse... They got me a bigger Bible, uh, bigger, bigger words. But it's still hard to zero in. Um, 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. So far, so good. 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. This is an actual place. So, you know, what we're reading here is an historical record. So you could go to Straight Street. That's the directions. This is very specific, what he's hearing. And ask for a man named Tarsus, named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. That's you, Ananias. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. What would you say if you got those directions, by the way? Okay, you're a believer. Oh, somebody said amen. Not me. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going, what? Give me somebody easy to get started with. Because let me, you know, I don't think I, this, he's the worst. If I show up there and this doesn't go well, I'm headed to Jerusalem. So God asked this guy, Ananias, not the same one we were in five because he's already with Jesus, that guy. This is a different guy. And, and, and God says, I want you to go to the worst guy you can imagine. He's praying and he's waiting for you to come. I don't know. I'm just trying to put the vibe in the room that this is a tough request. And, then, and, then, and if it were me, and sometimes I've felt like this, uh, God, you, I bet that was yesterday's pizza. That's not God. You know, something else is kind of uh, indigestion. And... Uh, We'll work that out later when, I don't, when I'm past the directions. But he says to him in verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, the man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name, my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people and to the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Which maybe is just kind of throwing in a nice bone that says, we're going to take care of some of that. I don't know how that works. But I think Paul later would talk about suffering and uh, understand what that meant. Paul has the best stuff on that. Then Ananias, he did it. He went up and went. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and the first thing he did, it says he was baptized. Sounds like how it ought to go. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, so you got this guy, Ananias, who gets the worst possible assignment on the planet, or the best one, depending on how you look at it. Because if Jesus is really about changing the unchangeable, if Jesus is really about breaking the mold on molds of, for people that can't be broken, then that's kind of one of the more exciting things you could possibly do, is to get that assignment and go, really? I mean, I had a question at first, too. Really? Okay. And then you show up, and the worst guy on the planet is there wrestling with God, waiting for what you brought him. Now, here's something you've got to see, which I think is super profound, and why this is an awesome text. So Jesus, they're on the road, shows up with light, big voice, then says, I'm Jesus, stop persecuting me and go do the next thing I told you to do. I'm going to tell you that in a minute. He doesn't say anything else. Why doesn't Jesus say anything else? When did Paul get converted? I think it's really interesting because uh, Jesus does not circumvent what he's already commanded all of us even in Paul's behalf. Now, Paul has to see Jesus. To be an apostle, you have to see the resurrected Jesus. We already saw that in the scripture earlier. So there's a formality. There's an important part of what just happened there. But why didn't Jesus just turn and go, so do you understand the gospel now that you understand that I'm real? Do you understand? No. He told his people, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You go. See, the plan was that you would go. And the Ananiases and uh, every, all the believers in Damascus and all the believers in the orchard. You go. That's what he's saying because that's how it works. Jesus even honors how it works even in the conversion of Paul. He showed who he was and then he put Paul in a place where somebody and called somebody to go talk to him. Think of the alternate ending on this thing where Ananias is getting a vision. I want you to go uh, I, I, I want you to go. He's waiting for a guy named Ananias to come and pray for him so that the, uh, uh, the scales will fall off his eyes. He'll receive the Holy Spirit and be saved. No. I'm not doing that. I think Jesus probably went and even, maybe, might even, if that was, if that, he would say Charlie, Charlie. I'd probably get two names on that one. Colin, Colin, get up and go. Get up and go because I think the challenge here is uh, Paul, you see the conversion and how beautiful that is, and we all go through that. But the real challenge is to identify with Ananias and what he was called to do. And to believe that somebody like Paul could actually change and step into that process. And I think, now there's people out there, I, there's a guy in this church, by the way. Um, I'll let him tell his story later, so I'm doing it incognito, but you can figure him out. He, he's praying one morning, three o'clock in the morning, he gets up, woke up by the Holy Spirit, and uh, is told, I want you to make an appointment with 
one of the richest, wealthiest, and most atheist persons in this valley. And I want you to get up and I want you to go tell them the gospel. Let's make it personal right here. He's getting his Ananias appointment. What did he do? He did exactly that. Got an appointment. Now, the end of the story's not done yet, but in the middle of that, or at the end of that meeting, the wealthiest, most powerful atheist in the area says to him, is God at the orchard? I said, man, I sure hope he is the day that he shows up. But if you're in the house, God is in the house because we are the temple, right? Wouldn't it be awesome uh, if, if that guy shows up and he encounters you and you are his Ananias? And it, God's leaning in for him is you leaning in. And see, let me tell you the good news about, about the gospel and who Jesus is. You see, if, if Ananias doesn't respond and go to Paul, the good news just falls flat and it's not good news. But he didn't. Paul was changed. I, I think where this is most convicting and most challenging is maybe people out there, like the story I just told, but it's, it's everybody that you know. It's right in your family. As soon as it's, it's right, it's in church where you, you, you make your judgment and go, that's just the way they are. Yeah, that's their attitude. That's just how they are. You know those people. And what we do is we start to get cynical, especially those of us who think we're good at reading people. You know those of us who are pretty intuitive. Oh, I've got, I've got my, I know that guy's number. And when you're saying, I got that guy's number, you're making a judgment. Only thing is, that's not your judgment to make. Wouldn't it be something if you just switched it and, you, and your thinking was completely different and it was, how does Jesus see this person? What do they look like with G, from Jesus' perspective? What does their destiny look like? Because the very worst, angriest, most violent Locked and loaded person from Jesus' eyes is completely different. Guarantee it. Didn't he see you differently? I think he did. I think he did. Now, okay, so the basic vision of this thing, of this church, is love God and love people. Your love for God is revealed in how well you love people. And how well you love people has everything to do with whether you believe they can change or not. And the reality is they can't change on their own, and that's the good news. Because the good news is God can change them, can take a hardened heart, a killing heart, and make it soft. Peter, I mean, Paul said, all I want to do is know Christ. That's all I want to know. He's the guy who said, and I quote it all the time because I love it, it's not that we loved him first, it's that he first loved us. He leaned in. That's the good news. We get to bring the good news. And it's so powerful. So if you go, the Shema is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. you got to love your neighbor. And that's the evidence of how well you're loving God. When you find out you're not loving your neighbor that way because you've gotten cynical, because you've got to read on people, because you're saying, you know, those people? Oh, I surrender that, God, because that's not your heart. Help me see them as you see them. There's one little phrase in there, too, that I think is important, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what does it say? Your neighbor as 
yourself. It could be that for many of us, it's us that doesn't think we can change. It's you, it, it's, you know, it's, it's us who feel like we're in a mold and we just can't break it. I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. I'm here in my mold. And Jesus says, you're right. That's the good news because I can change you. I'm not just changing you for change's sake. I'm changing you because I'm calling you into relationship. Because I just want to be in relationship with you. I just want to be in relationship with you. Conversion is beautiful. There's this guy, um, John Newton. I think he lived from uh, uh, 17, like 17 to 1809 or something like that. Historians can figure it out. Um, in, in England, he was a, uh, his mom was a Christian um, and uh, taught him some things about the Lord as he was young. And uh, she died at age seven, at his age, seven. And so his father raised him, and he raised him uh, to just basically be a hellion. And he was always in trouble. Even uh, hopping on ships, um, trying to avoid the trouble that he's been in. Signed up for the Navy, Royal Navy, and he uh, got kicked out of that. Found himself on slave ships. Taking slaves uh, that have been captured uh, in Africa over to the New World, the Americas. The worst of the worst, and it was the perfect place for him, and he excelled at that because he was a violent, mean guy in a violent, mean business. And I think it was like uh, in uh, 1747, somewhere in there, they're traveling back from the Americas, and there's this massive storm. This storm that is going to crash the boat. And he cries out in the midst of that storm, God, save me. Save me. He was the worst. And he cried out. And he was converted. And, and uh, uh, gave his life to Jesus. And realized real quickly, uh, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that. He even wrote a book called, oh, uh, I can't remember how, the, the name of it. I do this stuff by memory and my memory's not working that good. But, it's basically on the, on the African slave trade. And William Wilberforce uh, got that book and was instrumental in, in uh, eliminating slavery in England. A guy who's transformed, who became something else. He wrote a bunch of songs. And the ones that uh, you and I probably know the most. And so I want to sing that. Not, I'm not personally going to sing that. We're going to sing that together. But uh, you've heard it, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Get this line right here, because when we sing it, I want you to think about it. I once was blind, but now I see. And so, as we sing, and we'll sing it together, and then once that, uh, the traditional course is over, we can take communion, and uh, uh, I want you to just go, Lord, thank you for leaning in to me. Help me see things and people as you see them. Let's stand and sing. From a